welcome to this installment of the TC ne TCU Neely School Business Real Estate Webinar. My name is Carl Pankratz and I'm an adjunct professor at TCU and I'm also managing director and president of Blackacre Commercial, the sponsor of today's event. So Blackacre Commercial, uh, we're mortgage brokers that specialize in HUD, Fannie, Freddie, uh, and agency overall um, financing. Uh, we work with cities and their economic development departments, and we work with businesses to handle their consulting needs. Today, we have a great guest that couldn't be more experienced in affordable housing, and we're excited to really devote a lot of time to that. Um, but first, I wanted to see if Christina was on today. Christina, are you on? Okay, I don't think so. I know that um, from a TCU perspective, there's a lot going on as we prepare for, uh, I guess, on-campus teaching this semester. I know Christina's probably busy with that, so um, won't get the uh, typical update from TCU today, so we'll go straight to our speaker. Um, so a little bit about Jeff. So Jeff Spicer, um, as Vice President and project, uh, project Partner, Jeff Spicer is leading Dominion's efforts in Texas and helping Dominion grow their presence in this emerging market. Mr. Spicer is responsible for originating and overseeing new project development, financing, and acquisitions. Mr. Spicer joined Dominion in September of 2017, but has a long-term relationship lasting more than 10 years as a consulting partner for Dominion. He has over 25 years of experience in affordable housing, where he has worked to develop successful ventures in the state of Texas and across the southwestern part of the country. Prior to joining Dominion, uh, Mr. Spicer was co-founder and principal at State Street Housing Development, where he developed affordable housing in Texas and the Southwest. He currently owns more than 1,000 affordable housing units and has developed over 6,000 units nationwide. Uh, Mr. Spicer holds a bachelor's degree in economics and international business and a master's degree in real estate finance and investment, both from uh, the University of Wisconsin-Madison. He, he, he also holds a Wisconsin real estate license and has been active on a member of a number of boards. Mr. Spicer is a contributor to the Dominion Foundation, which contributes to important housing and social services uh, in the communities where Dominion operates. So, Jeff, excited to have you. And uh, first, I, I got to start off with, I saw that Dominion is based in Minneapolis. Is that right? That's right. Correct. So, I have uh, have one experience in Minneapolis. Uh, it was probably, I'd say, late May of uh, two years ago. I was in Minneapolis on business, so I was in a conference room all day. And uh, so it's late May. I'm like, you know, I, I heard how beautiful Minneapolis was. So the last day of the conference and I woke up, I threw in some jogging shorts and I was ready to just see the Minnesota beauty. So I, I, I get ready, go out of the elevator, right out the front door and it was 33 degrees. So quickly I ran back in that front door up to my room and found the first Southwest flight back to Dallas. So uh, hadn't really got to experience the beauty of Minneapolis, but there's so many, many great countries that were born out of there. So excited to hear Dominion's another one of them. Yeah, well, thanks, Carl. Yeah, Minneapolis is uh, unique. It's a great city. Um, I'm not actually from the, I, I'm from the Midwest. I'm from uh, Wisconsin originally in the Milwaukee area um, and spent my first 30 years in Wisconsin um, and before moving uh, first to Atlanta, then Florida. Uh, and then winding up here in Texas. So now I've been uh, a Texas resident the last uh, 17 years, uh, and that probably gives away my age a little bit. Um, so uh, I'm, I'm happy to be here and happy to be doing development in the great state of Texas. Okay, so, um, you know, obviously you said you're from the Midwest and you choose Wisconsin, which is, you know, one of the top real estate schools in the state. 
Um, did you know kind of as you were getting into school that you wanted to go into real estate? Did you have a family member in real estate? No, actually not. So uh, when I first started, uh, I did my undergraduate degree in economics and international relations. And um, probably like a lot of college students, I went in with absolutely no idea what my job was going to be when I got done. So uh, I graduated um, uh, with my degree in economics and international relations and said, well, wow, now what? <laughs> so um, the first thing I did out of college was uh, I ended up painting houses for a real estate investor. Uh, this man was someone who owned, you know, 50, 50 to 100 single family, uh, duplex, fourplex, triplex units in the Wisconsin area. Um, and so my first job out of college was painting houses. Um, and that's, that's when I said, you know what, this guy has a pretty good lifestyle. Maybe, maybe I could be all right and do all right in real estate. Um, so I went on uh, from there. Uh, I worked actually uh, for Bank One Trust at the time um, in the trust department, um, understanding a little bit more about, about financing in the world. And then went on uh, from there to uh, go back to graduate school uh, in the real estate department. And that's where I got my master's degree in real estate. Um, and, you know, that's, that's basically how I got my entry into, into commercial real estate was painting houses for an investor. Uh, not the normal way, but it was uh, a sideways in, you know, into the real, the world of real estate. So. Wow. Uh, still, you know, there's so many, there's something to be said about, you know, having a role model or just seeing somebody that's been successful, inspiring your success. So, and judging by the painting behind you, your love for paint still uh, still continues to this day. Still so. continues to this day. That is true. I, I do <laughs> love do love my artwork. So uh, the paintings that's that that's something that'll always stay with me. Uh, so my beginning in the business. You uh, obviously so you know you go back to graduate school. You decide that hey, I want to make a career out of this. Um, so what was your you know you graduate? What's that first job? So. The first job out of uh, out of grad school was uh, working for a nonprofit in Madison, Wisconsin, and um, in that role, um, I, I learned the affordable housing business. Um, I started several revolving loan funds, um, bought a few properties with the nonprofit, uh, managed a number of properties uh, in a college town, which is which is very interesting, uh, to say the least, and um, really learned the the basics of the business. Uh, in the affordable housing side uh, in my early nonprofit days. So that, that was the start. Um, and from there, that, that led me on. Um, well, so, Jeff, let me, let me stop here. Sure. There. So, I mean, there's a lot to unpack there. So you're learning property management, um, obviously by working on the houses around you, but you know, did the nonprofit also allow you to start putting in applications for, for tax credits where you were, or was that kind of job number two? That was kind of job number two. So um, the nonprofit, we, uh, we did buy uh, a number of affordable housing. It was used not necessarily in the Section 42 program, but we used home funds, CBG funds. Um, and I used some of those same funds to start the revolving loan funds uh, that we have to both not only do it ourselves, but to help other people in the community uh, provide affordable housing in Madison and, and the state of Wisconsin. Um, and so that, that was really part of our goal. Um, we had a socially conscious investing fund uh, where we had a number of, of uh, socially conscious investors that at the time when, when rates were 8, eight to 12% uh, were investing their money uh, in a socially conscious way uh, at, at 3 to 4%, 
really looking for some small return, but really looking in the greater return of, of trying to provide affordable housing. Mm. Um, and so that was, that was a very interesting entry, entry point for me and has really guided me. Uh, you know, affordable housing is a, is a great way to give back. Uh, yeah, I do very well, but at the same time, it's a great way to give back. Yeah, absolutely. So you leave the nonprofit and what's job number two? Um, job number two, um, well, I moved, uh, moved to Atlanta. Uh, so when I was in grad school, I broke my neck. Sounds funny. So, uh, but that's true. And I broke my neck in grad school. Uh, and I'm a quadriplegic, floppy hands, uh, use a wheelchair. Um, so I promised myself that um, when it got warm, when, when, it, when I got to a point where I could do it, I would move away from, from the cold weather, as you expressed in, in the Midwest and uh, move to warmer climates. Uh, wheelchairs and snow banks don't mix very well. So I, uh, I chose after working for the nonprofit for a few years, uh, I had developed a pretty good reputation. I moved to Atlanta to do consulting in the area of affordable housing. Um, so uh, did consulting there for about a year and then a company picked me up and said, hey, why don't you move to Florida and run a branch for us that does uh, underwriting for the state of Florida and loan servicing and compliance monitoring um, for the state of Florida. And so uh, I moved to, moved to Tampa and ran a branch there that did that for uh, two years. And then uh, from there went on to work for a developer in Jacksonville and we did, started doing developments um, uh, all over the country. Uh, we had developments in Florida, Georgia, Illinois, Indiana, Texas, Colorado, um, uh, New Hampshire, Virginia. We were in a number of different markets looking at uh, developments, developments everywhere in the Section 42 world. And so uh, going from the underwriting side, the consulting side, and then the development side, I finally found that I, I enjoyed development the most. Um, and so that has continued my career and you know, has gotten me the next uh, 20 plus years uh, uh, in affordable housing. Wow, so. Jeff, what a story, what a story. Um, so, you know, kind of, you mentioned that you learned, you, you mentioned some some terms like home loans and some of the other aspects of Section 42. Um, just very briefly, you know, when you're, you know, when somebody's looking, obviously, so the big picture here is that, you know, you know, there's a, a, a cry for more affordable housing. But from a market rate perspective, if you don't get any kind of, you know, whether it's equity or you don't get any money brought to the deal, you're just doing a straight market rate. There's just no way you can make affordable rents work. There's construction costs. There's material costs. I mean, there's, you know, there's just, there's too many factors that continue to escalate in price that make building a product, you know, at market rate with no incentives from a city, state, local uh, a plausible reality, right? So that's sure. why, in a way, there's a Section 42, there's Home, there's Chodo, there's a lot of different ways. But would you mind just going through, you know, if somebody, let's say somebody wanted to, to you know, I want to develop a, uh, a, a affordable housing, what kind of sources of money are out there to subsidize the costs of, of a market rate deal, basically? So uh, the first thing I tell someone when they say they, they want to develop affordable housing is I say, don't do it. Uh, so, but I, but I mean that in, in several senses, it don't do it without a lot of knowledge of what you, you're going into. Don't do it without a good consultant. Don't do it without good legal representation. 
um, and, and a number of other things. I, I've, I've given a presentation on that at the, the National Association of Home Builders for all those home builders that, that want to get involved in doing exactly that is providing affordable housing. Um, but as you mentioned, so Section 42 is a, a you know an IRS uh, regulation or code, um, and that provides each state a, a an allocation of tax credits on an annual basis, and those tax credits um, then are allocated to a project. The project then turns around and sells those tax credits. And that that those tax credits, uh, the equity raised from selling those tax credits, is then turned into the equity for the project. Um, generally, the investor there is is what they're buying as a tax return. So you are getting them a dollar for dollar reduction in their taxes over a ten year period in return for the equity they're providing, um, and you in return are agreeing to maintain the rents uh, and those apartments as affordable for initially a 15 year period and most likely a, a 30 plus year period. So the, the equity raised there is providing, if you're using a 9% credit, which is uh, the competitive credit, roughly 90% of your capital stack. So when you use a 4% credit that comes along with taxes and bonds, you're getting roughly 30% of your capital stack. And there's different regulations that go into each one of those. So um, that's, that's basically the Section 42 program in a very reduced nutshell. Um, then we can use other financing sources, uh, whether that's uh, local TIF funding um, or whether it's um, federally, they have both home and CDBG programs. Uh, CDBG is a community development block grant program and, and the home funding is exactly, it's basically a program um, that provides additional sources of funding for in some cases single family, uh, the way I use it is for multifamily. But again, it's it's really designed to provide affordable housing. It's a supplemental program to provide. Uh, in some cases, it's home repair. In some cases, it's uh, down payment assistance. And in the way we use it, it's used as a uh, a gap financing source uh, doled out by either the state or the local cities, um, which get that in turn from HUD. So. That is a, another mechanism, another financing tool in the toolbox for affordable housing. Yeah, there's a lot. So, you know, uh, the the 9%, obviously, you, hear, you know, somebody hears, wow, 90% of the cap stack? Wow. I mean, give me a piece of that. I can figure it out. Can you talk about, you know, you mentioned how competitive it is. First of all, talk about how competitive it is. And second of all, I mean, are there any tips to separate yourself in such a crowded field? Um. The, the tips for separating yourself are one, um, start with someone who has a great deal of experience. And if you don't, you go out and find the best consultant you can find um, to separate yourself. The other, the other tip there is, um, you know, for example, in Texas, uh, for every one project that gets done, we probably have five or six applications. So it's extremely, extremely competitive. And as you said, that's why some people say, 90% of your capital stack, I want that. And, and that all sounds great, but you have to remember that at the same time, there are, uh, there are risks that are associated with doing that, uh, that a lot of people don't look at. They only say, look, I want that 90% of the capital stack for free. Um, and that sounds great until you realize, well, my rents are capped. Um, and if, 
they're based on, the cap is based on the area media income. So if the median income for something doesn't go up for 10 years, and that we've seen a lot of increases over the last 10 years, which is great, but there have been historical periods where it hasn't. Uh, there were periods in, in Texas for a while uh, where we had five to six years of no increases in the area media income. And when that happens, your rents don't go up for five to six years. At the same time, your expenses do. Your property taxes go up. Your, what you're paying your managers go up. Uh, what you're paying uh, you know, for utility costs go up. And at that point in time, they're, the property isn't looking, you know, the property isn't financing itself. Um, they're looking to you as a developer to say, well, we, we earn 500,000 and we have 600,000 annual expenses. Can you make up the rest of that? So there are, there are risks inherent in the system. Um, you know, kind of to that, looking big picture, you know, you know, there are, you know, you see these incentives available, but, and you see all the articles that mention, Hey, you know, we need more affordable housing. Has it gotten any easier? It really, it really hasn't. Um, in fact, it's, it's gotten more difficult as we see, uh, we're having labor shortages right now. Uh, we see the cost of production continually increasing. Um, I, I'd love to see a day when we actually have production costs of, uh, of housing going down, but that's, that's just not the case. So, we're in an ever uh, spiraling upward climb of, of, of pricing. Um, we've seen rents go up, but we have expenses that go up just as fast. Um, you know, uh, given the time of COVID right now, uh, we have labor shortages, believe it or not. Uh, we don't have enough qualified people in the labor industry uh, to build the housing. And because of that, it, you'd think, oh, look, we have 20% unemployment. We're lacking people in the affordable construction industry specifically. Um, that know how, that are skilled and know what to do. Um, as, as crazy as that sounds, and that that is that is continually pushes prices up. You mentioned COVID, so we'll just go down this road. So, you know, from a landlord perspective, you know, since kind of March to you know really through July so far, um, I guess we're eight days in, people have been paying rent. You know, I think across the yeah. country, you know, asset type people are still paying rent, whether, you know, it's studies by NMHC, it's studies by local brokers. Um, but the question is, what happens July 31st? Now, for many, um, you know, obviously there's, there's some that have the, uh, the belief that the, the A-class renters are the ones who are going to get hit the hardest. Um, that's due to a number of factors. One, that, you know, white-collar jobs haven't really been affected, but stata, you know, there's a lot of data says that white-collar jobs are about to be affected in a heavy way. Um, obviously, you know, there's some that believe that in recessions or downtimes, class C people, uh, the class C units, excuse me, are the units that are always the hardest. Um, from an affordable housing, whether it's, you know, a voucher, you know, whether it's those that are paying, um, you know, area MAI of, we'll call it 60 or below, or even 80 or below, um, is this a sector that's a little bit more resilient? It, it, it depends. It's, there's a little hit and miss. So um, our portfolio is comprised of about 35,000 units of affordable housing uh, spread through 21 states right now. Um, and we have found um, that, that it, it's pretty resilient right now. Um, it, we did a statistical analysis of, of our, our tenant base and went in and correlated their employment and where they're employed 
and which sector that employment is in with um, the probability that they're going to uh, lose their job or not be able to pay their rent. And we actually found some pretty surprising statistics um, that a lot of those working in uh, uh, really industries that are, are considered to be, um, that, that must have industries. They're in hospital, um, they're in uh, uh, restaurant supply, they're in the supply chain. Uh, yeah, there's some retail and some restaurant workers, but there's an awful lot of other people that are working in jobs that are considered critical to our economy um, and haven't lost their jobs. Um, so far as well, the stimulus has helped. Uh, the stimulus checks that went out were significant. Uh, unemployment's been significant. And um, uh, the unemployment benefits, I should say, has been significant. And um, those have all helped making the rent payments. Now, we're, we're seeing some starting weakness in the rents right now. So we think in the next several months, we will see the start of some issues, um, you know, in downturn in the, in the economics of the apartment market. Um, and so we're, 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 we're carefully monitoring that. We as a portfolio um, look at our rent collections on a, a, a three times a week basis um, so that we're, we're very closely monitoring when that comes in, where it's coming in from. Um, and as a portfolio, we haven't seen a real downturn uh, as of yet, uh, but July looks like it's starting to be the beginning of, um, we're gonna see a slight downturn in collections. Mm. So, you know, when deciding when to do a, 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 you know, when choosing your site, you know, what, what, you know, you, you mentioned that, you know, there, July might be the sign of, you know, maybe you're starting to see uh, rents either not collected or you start to see maybe renewals um, come in less than maybe the year previously, or they're just affected somehow. Um, so the question is, is that affected? Is that, you know, inner city versus suburb? Obviously, market by market approach is one issue. So, the question is, you know, that all goes into choosing the right site. So at this point, we're pretty late in the cycle. If its cycle hasn't ended, but we're pretty late in the cycle, you know all this information. So what attracts you to sites? Like what are some of the specifics that say, hey, this is something that I really want to dig deeper into, or, you know, this is a site that maybe you know, this is a little bit more hair that I'm really looking to take on. Well, we, we've actually taken on some um, pretty significant hairy sites. Um, in the past, um, but what we look for is um, we're looking for markets where uh, renters are considered what we what we call high rent burden. So where the delta between the market rent and our affordable rents is significant. So that's our that's one of our first criteria is we're looking at the rent burden on the on the the, the family that's renting that unit um, or seniors. We have a number of senior properties. Um, and they're looking for different things in different properties. So on a family property, we're looking for high rent burden because um, we want someone in the market where um, it, it, it's, they're not otherwise going to get a, a unit of this type for this price. And we think that's significant. So, and then we're looking for um, job base. So we want the economics. We want people that, that have a diversified job base around the, around the site. Uh, that's significant. And then uh, we're looking for what a lot of people look for is uh, where's your retail? Where's your grocery store? Uh, what amenities does the area have? Um, am I surrounded by, you know, five miles of single family homes and you've got a, 
you know, you, you've got to drive somewhere. So, you know, those are proximity issues uh, that we look like, you know, we look at significantly when, when selecting a site. Is there still an appetite for tax credits from these investors? You know, you mentioned you're selling on a, on a nine or a four. Are there still investors out there looking for those tax credits? Yeah, there are. Um, you know, they're, they're, you know, as, as we look at a, an election year, um, we look at taxes and um, this is a one for one deduct in your, you know, offset in your taxes. If you're going to pay a dollar of a dollar of taxes, this offsets that dollar. So um, the major corporations out there are all buyers. Uh, some of the major companies, whether it's the big banks, uh, the insurance companies, they all have significant tax liability. And so one of the ways they offset that is by, by buying credits. Um, you know, we just recent talks with Berkshire Hathaway, they said they could buy up every credit in the country and still have tax liability. So there, there's going to be significant, um, significant demand for these on a go forward basis. Uh, you know, our, our biggest concern is, it, 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 you know, the economy is a short term issue, uh, but we sell ten, tax credits over a 10 year period. So, you know, investors look and they say, well, what's my tax liability for my next 10 years? And while the economics of the economy for this year and maybe next year maybe diminish, they look at and say, well, I'm buying for 10 years. It's a really long-term game. So uh, we do not see a, a diminished appetite uh, for tax credits in the market at this point. So the markets at this point, we're, you know, we, we talked about sites, we've talked about a lot of the, the pros and cons, but from the biggest challenges that you face on a day-to-day, you know, what are some of the, the biggest hurdles of getting these deals done? Um, they can be numerous and varied. Um, I just started a, a 300 unit project in Midland, Texas. It took me two and a half years to get off the ground. And the biggest hurdle was um, I had to build a public road to do it. <laughs> and the, uh, the red tape uh, about getting a public road built um, really hampered the project. So that was a significant issue. We, in building a road, we thought our developer or thought our land seller owned all the road. Well, Tatter Toddy didn't. Turns out, you know, part of the right of way of the road went through uh, a site that was owned by Encore. Uh, so now we had to get uh, approval from Encore to go build a road through part of their site. Whoops, well, they're a public utility. Well, that, that's, a, that's a whole, you know, another set of rules that it regulations you have to deal with. As a developer, I'm pretty good. I, I, I can get from slab to, to the roof pretty good. But when you say I have to go start to deal with uh, Encore and permitting of roads, that's a whole different, whole different process. And design, you know, in and of itself has led itself to a whole different set of, uh, you know, red tape and opportunities that you're just not used to. So that was a... That was a real challenging process. Um, and some of the other things that we deal with on a regular basis, um, we have a great need for affordable housing. Uh, being in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, we have a, uh, a 40 to 50,000 unit need for affordable housing right now. And you know, economists are saying we're gonna grow um, at a rate of 130,000 a year for the next, uh, the next 10 plus years. So when we look at that, we're saying we're going to add another 5,000 units of need for affordable housing uh, over the next 10 years on an annual basis. Another 50,000 units. We're already 50,000 short. We're going to need another 50. That means that over a 10-year period, I could build 100,000 units of affordable housing. There's not 
there's not enough credits, there's not enough to get that done. And yet that is needed in the market today. The biggest problem we run into is NIMBYism and communities that just don't want affordable housing. That's someone else's problem. So um, over the term of my career, that's been the, by far the biggest issue is that the people that need that housing, which is, there's, there's a lot, lot, you know, a lot of people you'd be surprised that live or can afford uh, or, or live in affordable housing. Um, and uh, that's our biggest problem. I've been escorted out of public hearings for my own safety um, uh, in several places in Texas uh, where we had three or 400 angry people that we don't want that by us. Despite the great need, sorry, not here. Mm. So that's one of the that that by far is one of our biggest obstacles. So you know the the biggest you know from a city council perspective, the biggest complaint I know that when I was on council that I'd receive on these projects is crime. You know the citizens would say, well, there's so much crime, or you're going to hurt our school system. Can you speak specifically to to, to both of those issues? Yeah, I mean, it's funny. I, I had a community once, and this is one of the places where I was escorted out under police, uh, under police escort for my safety. Um, they said, we're going to bring crime. So I, you know, I had to post a sign on the site. And it's funny, but the, pe the place where I was going to bring crime to, first they chopped down my sign. So I had to put the sign back up. So the sign went back up, and then they burned down my sign. And um, that, that said, well, look, I'm not the one bringing crime here. seems like you have crime here already. Um, you know, and it's, it's, all about, it's all about managing, managing the communities. Um, all affordable housing that we develop, um, I can do a criminal background check on everybody. I'm not only am, am I, can I, I'm required to by the state. So if implemented properly, I'm not gonna let anyone with a felony into my property. And if someone shows up, and wants to rent, I can turn them away. Now they can move into the house next door. They can move the house next door to you. But if there's a, if there's, you know, someone committed of a sexual nature or, or a murder, I, I, don't, I don't have to rent to them. They can move next door to you, but I, I, I can say no. And it's part of my job as a good management company is to say no to those people. And that's something we do on a regular basis. We can do it. We do do it. We're required to do it by the state, and we follow those follow those regulations and rules. Mm. So, when a, you know, it's kind of a when when the economy gets bad, um, quickly the market rate guys stop developing, right? So a lot of times it's because banks can you know a lot of a lot of reasons you know, but for the most part, a lot of the market rate your traditional apartment developers they go as far as the banks take them. So if the banks decide we're going to cut off the liquidity, then generally that stops a bunch. Now, you know, you, you have experience in HUD loans. HUD has great programs available, but as you also know, HUD has to, you know, kind of review the site, do a market study, and sometimes they won't let you build even if you want to. So, you know, typically banks. So in an environment where the banks have stopped or minimized, so then market rate developers have stopped or minimized, are affordable guys still pushing through and you know kind of like you know nothing's really changed yes and no i mean um 
a lot of the larger developers push through. And there's a lot of smaller developers that don't have the wherewithal um, to make their projects work. Um, we will do projects uh, that you know we don't get a fee on because it's the right thing to do. Uh, as as you know, we are long-term owners of real estate at Dominium, and that differentiates us from someone who's just doing it for a fee. Um, you know, we are we have several projects in our portfolio that have hit 40 years this year. Uh, so we're really look at the long term for this project, and me not making a fee up front. Uh, means I still have a great asset for the next 40 years. That's something I can still be happy with. Whereas a lot of what we call fee developers that are here today and gone tomorrow, um, you know, can't do do it without you know, without you know a big uh, big chunk of that. So you know, we we're a little we differentiate ourselves in that regard. Um, but for the most part, you know, when the market is bad, as you said, when things are bad. Is when people need the affordable housing the most, um, and I think it's actually the most opportune time to build um, because there's so many people that need it, and so many people realizing that my goodness, I do need this because we are we have people in our our area that need affordable housing. They can't live in the in the market rate that's you know that's that's four thousand dollars a month for a, you know an apartment, so. Um, it's at that time that we think it's most important to keep building, to make sure that we have uh, access uh, to affordable housing for the long term. Is there is there a deal story that, and as we have a couple of questions left, is there is there a deal story where it was kind of uh, you know what, did it never again, or that happened, and I darn sure make sure in all my deals I make sure that that doesn't happen again. Um, yeah, yeah, I have one of those. I actually, I probably have several of those. Um, so, uh, after for, for a number of years, I worked for a, a major developer in Texas. Um, and then I, I went out on my own, um, started state street housing and, uh, my first development with my partner, uh, we ran into, uh, the nimbyism issue. Um, we tried to build affordable housing on a golf course and I won't say where, which city, um, both family and senior, uh, but politically, um, we were turned down and turned back despite the fact that it was zoned, it had everything needed, um, but we were turned away politically. Um, and so that, that, that's where I learned, uh, I lost my first half million dollars uh, uh, in that deal. Wow. So uh, going home from one of those meetings, uh, my wife turned to me and said, never again, <laughs> this is it, when you have that kind of political opposition, never again, go find deals, uh, where people want you to go. So, um, that was one of the big, big issues. Um, and as I mentioned one earlier, um, I don't think I want to build any more public roads, uh, that, uh, that two and a half year process to get a, a public road permitted, um, was, uh, was a real beatdown. I'm pretty good at, at developing sticks and bricks, uh, making great communities, uh, but I'm probably not so good at putting public roads in, and I think I need to stick to what I do well. So uh, that's you know those are some of the stories uh, that you look at. You mentioned earlier uh, about COVID and sighting, and a little anecdote from one of my uh, one of my counterpart developers in in 
the rest of the industry and, you know, was talking about, well, I thought it was great. I was sighted next to a, next to a casino and uh, all my people worked at either the casino or the hotel. They had great steady jobs. Well, that, that worked real well till 90% of his, uh, his tenant base was unemployed recently. Um, and uh, he has basically an empty apartment building now. So wow. uh, it goes to show that even the, you know, you thought it was a well laid out. Uh, I'm, I'm right next to a casino. All the hotels and the casino will keep all my people employed and they need affordable housing. Yeah, I mean, so, that's, that's, that's a life story, Jeff. It's one of those things where you do yeah. all you can, you plan, you do everything right, and it's just like something like that doesn't have, you know, doesn't work out. Like, what do you do? You know, it, it, it's you know, it's an anecdote, but it's 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 the truth for this. And uh, this poor gentleman, luckily, he's a little more diversified than this one property. Um, but uh, it it is a life story. You thought I'm well well suited here. But in, you know, it, it, it harkens back to one of your questions earlier. What do you look for? And I, I look for a diversified employment base. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's one of the keys that, you know, what, I'm, what am I looking for? Um, if I'm 100% dependent on one or two businesses in the area uh, for my tenant base, it's probably not the site I should be looking at. Yeah, well said. And, and you know, I also love to bring up the point that on, on the casino is a great, is a great illustrative of, not every real estate deal makes you money. And, and it's just like, I try, to, I, try, I try to harp on the fact that, you know, we've seen all these years of just, you put a stick in your ground and you just made 5X, 10X. But this isn't, nas- this isn't always how it works. And I just, you know, I think that's always good to illustrate that real estate is risky. And even if you, your numbers look phenomenal on the spreadsheet, that doesn't mean it's gonna be a success story. So great, great point. Yeah, there's a lot of a lot of people see, well, man, you make these big fees and these are great, but they don't see the risk that comes with that when you're signing on the dotted line and saying, my my family's entire net worth and lifestyle is guaranteed when I sign this. And I take a risk every time that I'm not next to that casino, that that doesn't happen to me, um, that we don't have stagnant area media income for the next 10 years and I'm going to be writing a check uh, every month to make that mortgage payment um, so I can support this property uh, because I don't, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to be the guy filing for bankruptcy. Um, So um, they see the fees, they don't see the risk that's associated. Uh, That that, that is a real lesson that in, in what society sees of real estate development, they don't ever see the, they see the, the glitz, they don't see the risk. Yeah. So we did have a question come in and it is a little technical. Um, I promise you there'd be no math involved. So uh, if you don't want to answer this, don't have to, but uh, Ian, you know, Ian uh, wrote in a question that says um, the section 42 LIHTC LURAs I've read include an option for nonprofits to buy out these properties after the extended compliance period at the debt plus taxes. How do you make money with no capital gains or equity? Um, not all LURAs are structured that way. Um, so, and, and there's ways, there's ways around the, the LURA. So for example, at year 15, um, what we often do is we will resyndicate a property. So we'll go in and uh, put another extended use period on it. So, um, and there's lots of properties that trade after year 15. In fact, we very look at we, we look at that year 15 event 
at the end of the initial compliance period as a, uh, that's our capital event. Um, and that's the time to recapitalize the property, whether it's through a refinance um, and, and a rehab or to go in and get additional credits placed on the property for the next 15 years. Um, and that's really the way to keep properties in the program um, is to make sure that they're recapitalized on a regular basis um, and, and get the rehab that they need. Um, there's a lot of places that don't see that. And they're just saying, well, just run it out to the end of the 15 or 30 or 40 uh, or, or 50 years. Um, in, fact, in fact, some places uh, we, we developed one in Michigan that, you know, in order to get the deal done, you say, I'm going to be affordable housing in perpetuity. Yeah, that's a, that's a tough one. Um, and, you know, you're going to be affordable for perpetuity, but, you know, unless you can recapitalize that, uh, no one wants to live in something that, that has been built in year one and in year 50, there's been no maintenance. So, you, you know, it's, it's, it's one of those, those other lessons of you got to take care of your properties too, and you got to recapitalize them uh, to make sure that they're renovated uh, and have proper, proper maintenance for the long term. I don't know well, if that answered your question, but that, that there, you know, there's, there's a sales event along the way um, that can potentially counter, counteract that, that, that right of first refusal you talked about. So I always like to end these with the question of just, are there any nonprofits you're working on or, or charities or anything that you're kind of involved with these days? Um, you know, I'm working with um, and actually have a call with them on Friday uh, family Gateway. Um, they they help um, families that are experiencing um, issues in temporary homelessness. Uh, a lot of people see the the homeless man woman on the street, um, and that's that's a portion of the population, but they don't see the families. And there are really families that that fight serious um, homelessness issues, and it's not necessarily they're all their fault. Um, and so we try and make sure that, that we have a place for those people um, and a home for those. In fact, um, we're working very specifically in some of our properties here in the, the Dallas area to make sure that the Family Gateway folks get, get housed appropriately. Um, and, um, you know, it's not a, it's not a handout. It's a, it's a step up um, so that, uh, that those people can resolve their whatever issue that brought them to homelessness because uh, a lot of them, they're not by their own choosing. So um, that's one, what I'm working with. Um, on a national basis, we work with Catholic, with Catholic charities. Uh, we did a, a, a several, did a hundred million dollar development with Catholic charities in Minneapolis area um, for uh, uh, the, the Dorothy Day uh, facility up there. Um, and they, ser they serve, I think, uh, somewhere upwards of 200,000 meals a year, um, providing services for their residents. Um, and we did that on a pro bono basis for the Catholic Charities. Uh, part of our Dominion Foundation, we do uh, pro bono work with uh, a number of different nonprofits in various uh, various communities around the nation um, to say, you know, give back uh, uh, of what we do. So we give of our time. I think that 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 project took several several uh, several thousand hours of man time on our part um, that we donated and just gave back to the Catholic charities to make sure that project happened. And we're doing that in a number of other communities around, uh, around the nation. So that's, uh, th there's a, there's a number of different communities, but I, I Catholic charities one and family gateway is the other. Yeah. 
That's great. Well, I think that's a great way to end this conversation. Jeff, you gave us 45 minutes of your time. Thank you for the, the gracious, gracious advice and just, you know, general thoughts. And, and uh, we really appreciate you for, for joining us today on the webinar. Thank you. And thank wow. you, everybody that attended today. Thank you. Thank you. Uh-huh.